dropping on my face. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's that time again. Welcome to the Matt Watch That podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to review a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat. Before we start, when I was watching this week's movie, I couldn't help but admire how incredible of an actor this young gentleman was, who tragically died at the age of 24. It got me to thinking about how every generation has that actor or actress who's passed away that you kind of thought, what if? I don't believe that some would have sustained their mythical status if they had lived and their career continued. Part of their appeal is about being captured in time. That immortality builds the legend. When I was growing up, there were some impactful deaths of young actors who I admired. The three that come to mind are Christopher Pettit. He had a small role in Point Break, but was most famous for Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead as Zack, the lovelorn teenager. Shortly thereafter, he was in a Western series called The Young Riders, which starred James Brolin, Stephen Baldwin, Don Franklin, Melissa Leo. It was a really entertaining show. He appeared in the third season. As a young adult, he starred in the MTV series Undressed. I remember seeing him on screen but didn't recognize him at first. There was something in his eyes. I'm like, I know this person. We didn't have IMDb at that time, but I eventually put it all together. I know you can't judge a person based on their roles, but he seemed like a nice guy. I haven't read anything to the contrary. He died in 2000 at the age of 24. The next was Jonathan Brandis. The first time I saw him was probably in The NeverEnding Story 2, Electric Boogaloo. He would go on to star in It, the TV miniseries, and appeared in an episode of The Wonder Years. I also saw him in Sequest alongside Roy Scheider, Ted Raimi, and Don Franklin. He's in two of my favorite bad movies, Ladybugs with Rodney Dangerfield and Jack A. Harry, and Sidekicks with Chuck Norris and Bo Bridges. They're not good, but entertaining as hell. I thought he was a talented actor. Yes, he appeared in some silly movies, but you can tell when there's an underlying ability. He joined the 27 Club in 2003. The last is River Phoenix. He was my generation's James Dean. He was the essence of cool, even though I've read he didn't always feel that way. But he had the look, and what an incredible actor. He was a standout in everything he was cast in. Explorers, Stand By Me, The Mosquito Coast. I'm a huge fan of his, but I haven't seen all of his movies, and it's partially because I don't want to. I know this is odd, but his filmography is limited, and I always want to know that there's a River Phoenix movie out there to watch. So I've avoided seeing many of his movies like Little Nikita or My Private Idaho. This is a stupid quirk of mine, I get it. It also saddens me to watch his films because he was so damn gifted. He made acting look effortless. He was nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Running on Empty at the 1989 Academy Awards at 19 years old. He would die four years later on Halloween 1993 at the age of 23. Some of these passings are self-inflicted, some are accidents. Even though there's pain in losing people you admire, there is a comfort in knowing that their talents have been captured on film and their legacy will live on. On to the main attraction. 
Each review will end with a ranking out of 5 stars. 1 star is Skip It. 2 stars, Watch at Your Own Risk. 3 stars, Standard Fair. 4 stars, Worth Checking Out. And 5 stars, Must See. Now if I give a title 5 stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca or Jaws or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. I'll keep the spoilers to a minimum, tangents to a maximum. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie Rebel Without a Cause from 1955 about troubled youth Jim Stark who moves to a new town with his family for a fresh start when bad habits reemerge. The film was directed by Nicholas Ray, who also helmed Johnny Guitar, Flying Leathernecks, and In a Lonely Place. The screenplay was written by Stuart Stern. He scribed Sybil, Rachel Rachel, and The Outsider. It was based on a story by Nicholas Ray and Irving Shulman. The movie starts off at a police station where we meet the three main characters. Modern conventions would say that the scene goes on a little too long, but I thought it was a good introduction to the people that we'll be spending the most time with. Rabble-rouser Jim Stark has been picked up for drunkenness and brought down to the police station. He's just moved into the neighborhood, doesn't have any friends, he wants to fit in and not feel ashamed of himself. He's convincingly portrayed by James Dean. He received two posthumous nominations for Best Actor in a Leading Role for Giant and East of Eden, which completes his feature filmography. His parents arrive at the station, and they try to support him, but are inconsistent with their words. They don't understand why he's so unhappy, because they buy him nice things. That should fix him, right? Carol and Frank Stark are played by Anne Doran, a character actor who appeared in It, The Terror from Beyond Space, and Jim Backus, who was best known as Thurston Howell III on Gilligan's Island and the voice of Mr. Magoo. Teenager Judy was found on the streets at one in the morning and brought in for being out after curfew. She has a difficult relationship with her father. He doesn't show her affection anymore, and in turn, she feels unloved and unappreciated. Natalie Wood was nominated for Best Actress in a Supporting Role, her first of three nominations in total. She's appeared in West Side Story, Splendor in the Grass. As a child actress, she starred in Miracle on 34th Street, a perennial favorite I've never seen. Alphonse! Alphonse! Put that one on the list. John Plato Crawford is brought in for questioning over the shooting of puppies. Yeah, you heard that one right. Who decided that the sidekick of the protagonist should be a puppy killer? I didn't read that chapter in Sid Field's screenplay. He's obviously a bit disturbed. His housekeeper is with him in place of parents. He's neglected, a loner. The character is played by Sal Mineo, who appeared in Escape from the Planet of the Apes and The Greatest Story Ever Told. This role earned him an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Jim sees Judy in the neighborhood, recognizes her from the police station. He tries to flirt, but she turns him down. As her boyfriend Buzz and his gang arrive to pick her up, they give him a hard time. One of the members of his crew is Dennis Hopper, so look out for that. On the first day of school, there's a field trip to a planetarium. What type of school is this where that happens? It must be one of those unreality schools like in Pretty Little Liars, where they have parties on trains and elaborately themed dances. Give me a break. During an exhibit, Jim tries to make a joke to get on their good side, but it backfires. Buzz and his gang wait for him outside and slash his tire. This leads to their first confrontation, which is eventually broken up. Buzz is portrayed by Corey Allen, an actor who transitioned to behind the camera and directed episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, Quincy, The Paper Chase, Dallas, and many other series. He challenges Jim to a race at Millertown Bluff, the consequences of which will change their lives. Rebel Without a Cause is a tough movie for me to analyze. I liked it at some level, but I wanted to like it more. 
I'm not sure if it's the mystique of James Dean or the glowing reviews from critics, but I just didn't connect with it. I enjoy watching movies from that era or about that era, so to not feel enthusiastic about it is a bit disappointing. The acting from James Dean, Natalie Wood, and Sal Mineo is outstanding, though a bit over the top in some places, and there were times when I thought, who reacts like that in a situation? It felt like adults' first attempt to understand misunderstood youth, and it's at such a superficial level. It was probably groundbreaking for the time, but The Breakfast Club does a much better job at peeling back the layers of teenage angst and anxiety. Even if that was 30 years later, it was still ahead of its time and relevant today. It could also be called Rebel Without a Resolution because the problems that were present at the beginning of the movie were still there at the end. I didn't see much arc to the characters. One of the only things that kept me entertained was looking up the meanings to all the insults that were thrown around. Wheel, yo-yo, pigeon. I don't need an urban dictionary. I need a boomer dictionary. The cinematography was captured by Ernest Holler. He was Academy Award nominated for Mildred Pierce and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and won for Gone with the Wind. It was edited by William Ziegler, who has over 100 credits to his name, including My Fair Lady, Strangers on a Train, and The Music Man. Speaking of, the score was composed by Leonard Rosenman, whose credits include Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, The Jazz Singer, and Cross Creek. He won back-to-back -back Academy Awards for Best Music Original Song Score for Barry Lyndon and Bound for Glory. The music has elements of jazz along with lush orchestrations as featured in the love theme. There were a few times when I thought the music felt out of place. It would have fit better in a film noir movie like Maltese Falcon, a little too overdramatic for certain scenes. It does feel very 50s, and that is a compliment. Here's a fact of Matt. Rosamond was roommates with James Dean. The runtime is 1 hour, 51 minutes. It had a budget of $1.5 and grossed $4.5 at the box office. It was nominated for three Oscars at the 1956 Academy Awards. James Dean died on September 30th, 1955, one month before the film's release. Ultimately, the movie comes down to Monkey Business, That Away, The Blade Game, Living on the Edge, Hit Your Lights, Buzzkill, Bad Motor Scooter, Playing House, and Daddy Issues. I give it 3 out of 5 stars. I think it's worth checking out for the historical significance, but it's standard fare for me. If you've seen Rebel Without a Cause and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along. Each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. I never thought that a funeral could be inspiring, but Jim Henson proved me wrong. Even though I love animation and had all the Disney classics on VHS, I preferred watching The Muppets. When I stayed home from school, I couldn't tell you how many times I watched the gang in Muppets Take Manhattan, The Muppet Movie, and The Great Muppet Caper. I think it's because when I watched an animated movie, I know I'm watching an animated movie. But with The Muppets, they were real. And they were spectacular. You could physically touch them. You could see them interacting with actual people and the surrounding environment. When Jim Henson would do interviews and they brought out a Muppet, even when he's sitting six inches away in full camera view, your eyes still go to Kermit or Rolf or Dr. Teeth. And they're completely alive in that moment. Pieces of felt and stuffing. With all due respect to the current and future performers, nothing will ever replace the original Muppeteers, Frank Oz, Richard Hunt, David Goles, and Jerry Nelson. 
they were puppeteers, actors, singers, and stand-ups. There was such a kinship, camaraderie, a talented group of people brought together by a man with a singular vision. They created The Muppet Show, Three Muppet Movies, Muppet Babies, Fraggle Rock, The Dark Crystal, The Storyteller, Labyrinth, and contributed to Sesame Street, Star Wars, and Saturday Night Live. So I was floored when Jim had died. He was the driving force behind some of my favorite TV specials and movies, ones that I continue to watch to this day. He passed away on May 16, 1990, at the age of 52. On July 2nd, a funeral service was held in London. Henson requested that no one wear black and that it should be a celebration. Members in the audience were given rods with butterflies at the end that they could wave. Each Muppeteer conveyed personal anecdotes about their fearless leader. Frank Oz shared a funny story about a Christmas present he received from Jim. They had a great partnership. Bert and Ernie, Kermit and Fozzie, the Swedish chef. There are videos of them riffing together, and you can just tell how much fun they're having. The highlight of the ceremony was when the remaining Muppeteers recreated how they would record in the studio and sang a medley of Jim's favorite songs. And at the finale, you can see the positive impact he's made on people's lives. I don't think there's been a standing ovation at a funeral before or since. I'm going to post this clip on the Matt Watch That Playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. There will never be another like Jim Henson, along with Bob Ross, Mel Blanc, Chuck Jones, Steven Spielberg, and John Williams. Those are my biggest creative influences in entertainment. If he'd lived, Jim would have been 85. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Good Boys. I felt like this episode had a lot of death, so I wanted to leave everyone with a laugh and a rising star. This is a legitimately funny movie. It's been a while since I laughed this hard at a comedy. I didn't have any expectations going into it. I had seen a couple of ads, but it really didn't hit my radar. So I watched it on HBO and was pleasantly surprised when I found myself laughing hysterically throughout the film. It's about three best friends, Max, Lucas, and Thor, yes, that's right, Thor, who are invited to their first kissing party. The problem is, they've never kissed anyone before. So Max uses his father's drone to spy on the girls next door, because as he explains, my neighbor is a total nymphomaniac. Lucas responds, she starts fires? To which Max says, no, that's a pyromaniac. She's a nymphomaniac, someone who has sex on land and sea. (laughs) That is such a great line. Oh, man. When they end up losing the drone, they have to skip school to replace it before Max's father finds out and grounds him, making him unable to go to the party and kiss his dream girl. It stars Jacob Tremblay, Keith L. Williams, and Brady Noon as the boys, with Will Forte, Molly Gordon, Midori Francis, and Stephen Marchant in supporting roles. If you can get past some of the raunchy jokes and innuendos, the filmmakers truly capture that age where boys try to be good, but struggle with that urge to do bad things to impress their peers. The three leads are charming and totally commit to the parts. They perfectly strike that balance between wanting to be treated older, yet falling back into those childhood habits. I'm officially on the Trombley train. I was certainly impressed with his performances in Room, Before I Wake, and The Book of Henry. But when actors are that young, you never know if they're truly talented or if their performances are being prompted off-screen by parents or the director. I saw him in two movies last year, which convinced me how special of a performer he is. 
The first was Good Boys. As I've mentioned, comedy is not easy to do, and when you have funny lines, it's tempting to try and play that up, but the best thing you can do is say it straight. The way Jacob delivered the lines, his facial expressions, were all spot on. The second was Dr. Sleep. He has a cameo appearance in that movie as a favor to director Mike Flanagan, who he worked with on Before I Wake. I don't get rattled by horror movies. There are only so many jump scares you can flinch at in a lifetime. But this scene shook me. And I've seen both versions of it. If the theatrical version was unsettling, the director's cut was downright disturbing. I've read a few interviews where the adult actors in the scene were completely thrown off by how convincing his performance was. It was visceral. If Jacob continues in this business, he will be the finest young actor of his generation. I look forward to seeing what the future has in store for him. Good Boys is such a quotable movie. As with most Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg-produced films, there are plenty of deleted scenes, alternate lines, and outtakes on the Blu-ray, which I recommend. If you need a good laugh in quarantine, this is your movie. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. I do plan on having an interactive element, but I need those listeners. So follow, subscribe, like, and spread the word. Until next time, wash up and go home. He would go on to star in It, the mini-TV series. The mini-TV series? <laughs> no, you dope. As with most Seth Goldberg... Seth Goldberg. As with most Seth Greenberg... I'm making names up now. This leads to their first contra... Contraception. <laughs> Rebel Without a Cause, from 1953. For what, what, what year was that, Matt?